Episode 60 of the Bowery Boys, Five Points Part 2, Back to the Gutter. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Tom Myers. And I'm Greg Young. And this is part two of our look at Five Points, the most notorious slum in lower Manhattan in the 19th century. If you missed last week's episode, you might want to listen to that one first. Or if you'd rather not know what's going on, keep playing. Well, we're going to give a a little recap of last week's episode. And then we're going to jump right into the 1850s and play you the latter days of Five Points through Refugee. Form new immigrants and its eventual demolition. So join us as we go back to Five Points. Okay, Greg, before we just jump back into the mid-19th century, why don't you rewind just a bit and situate us in Five Points? Well, to recap, yes, please. The, um, the Five Points, this neighborhood in downtown Manhattan, now in the sort of civic center Chinatown neighborhood is where it is. It existed from the 1820s until the end of the 19th century, and we'll tell you all about that end. Five Points was the intersection of various streets. Anthony Street, which is now Worth Street, Orange Street, which is now Baxter, Cross Street, which then disappeared, as well as Little Water Street, which no longer exists either. One block up from this intersection was the street Mulberry Street, which still has its same name today. Five Points sprouted up on the land that once contained Collect Pond. I don't know how many times we can stress that. (laughs) We're really Uh, showing off at this um, point. Which drained and was replaced with some buildings that then sunk into the soggy ground, and then those buildings were replaced with cheaper tenements. Obviously, then, this is where really poor New Yorkers, but the primary group, of course, were the Irish, who almost took over the whole place. We briefly discussed the street scenes, a little bit of the makeup of what Five Points looked like at this time and basically got up to around 1850. By 1850, this neighborhood was renowned as being one of the worst neighborhoods in New York in the world, thanks to Charles Dickens and other writers and people who came through here. So the city thought, well, I have an idea. Maybe if we just change the names of all the streets, things will get better. Right, all the thieves will get confused and go to the wrong street. I guess so. Like if you say, "Hey, meet me on meet me on Orange Street," and they get down there and it's not there, it's like, "Well, I can't mug anyone. I don't know where I'm at." Anyway, that's where Worth Street came from. So Anthony Street disappeared. Believe it or not, I know this is going to shock you, but that this doesn't work. As a matter of fact, by this stage, Five Points is breaking out of what we would consider this neighborhood and stretching up towards Canal, stretching down. It's it's the neighborhoods. It's kind of consuming the whole area. Right, which is the other conversation we had about Five Points being a specific intersection and at the same time, the name for the entire neighborhood. Right. This whole collection of blocks was referred to as the five points. But reforms do actually come to five points in the 1850s. Right. Protestant reformers had started to fight back at this point. The churches, interestingly, Greg, had largely disappeared from the neighborhood. because <laughs> I'm not surprised. They weren't following, they weren't getting, getting very good business, and they had seen it sort of as a lost cause. But the Methodists were ready to take a 
chance here and they were not gamble af- on the area. They were not afraid of the grog houses. Right, or the... Stale beer. Thank you, stale beer. I'm looking through my notes. Right, the beer at the bottom of the keg. Yes. Um, there had been charities before this, but they were of a different scope. But in 1850s, the Methodists moved in sponsoring something called the Mission. Now, the Mission was really... It had a focus that was grounded in religion and converting the lost souls. This was an underlying belief that you can convert the neighborhood by, you know, converting them to this particular religion. And that's popular today with many religious faiths. Of course. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of the basis of missionary work. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine the scene in 1850 when these respectable ladies came in and started to try to teach in their mission, which was set up right in the middle of Five Points, and were (laughs) met with some very lewd behavior. (laughs) I'm sure. They had to reach out and grab a 30-year-old minister full of chutzpah named uh-huh. uh, Louis Pease, brought him down from, I believe, Massachusetts, and uh-huh. he started to expand the mission and to really restore order to it. He argued, though, with the leaders of the mission on what role the specific religion should play, because mm-hmm. he saw more urgent need to give bread than Bibles to these people. So the mission started not just feeding people, but also he started job training. And he was teaching ladies how to make shirts, how to become skilled artisans, uh, men to become factory workers, ladies to become domestic servants, domestic workers, in people's homes in New York City. This peace so, guy was quite a guy. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was hardy. Um, and of course, they needed some place to live because if you send people home and other people were drinking in the homes, it could be Unravel, you know, right. all out the window. So they started opening up apartments and you can see how the mission started to expand. Well, that same year, Pease opened up not only a Sunday school, which would obviously have religious restrictions on it, but a day school because mm-hmm. he wanted some place where children could go every day of the week, right. not just on Sunday. And the board was really arguing with him on this because it was outside the scope of their mission. And so he was finding the money on his own. So he was really reaching the bottom of his heart to really get, to do this because no one was helping him out, essentially. Well, the church was at first, but in 1851, they sat him down and said, look, we have an issue here. How many souls have you <laughs> saved in the five points and he couldn't name one. Oh. <laughs> like he just didn't know their names or he actually didn't think no, he had he, saved one. That hadn't really been his priority. So And because he couldn't lie because he's a preacher. Right. So he split and formed his own charity called the House of Industry. We'll get to that in a second. Okay. Meanwhile, back to the mission, they continued without peas and in 1853 they took over the old brewery. That oh, we talked that, about last week. Vicious place, just filled with hundreds of people in a atrocious living conditions. Right. Well, the people were no longer in there when the church mission took over. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> you can imagine what a statement it made to take over the very symbol mm-hmm. of the Five Points, the old brewery, and convert it into the mission. The old brewery, however, as the mission was, you know, it continued to be a little bit controversial because anybody who came for assistance, for training, for shelter, for food, was asked to believe in the Methodist faith. And if they happened to be Catholic, as many of the Irish were, or like all of them. Like most of them. Uh 
that they renounce their faith. Um, so this is help with some major strings attached. Right. And if they were unwilling to do that, then I believe that the people at the mission were pretty much unwilling to provide assistance. Would turn them out. They might, however, send them over to Pease, oh, who was okay. over at the House of Industry. The House of Industry, correct. So, I don't know. The House of Industry just sounds kind of fun. It also sounds like a <laughs> club from the 90s. It does. I can hear the dance music now. I'm sure it was just a nonstop party at the was House there of a Industry. Club? Industry? I don't believe so, but we okay. could. But for, for the sake of this podcast, let's pretend. Okay, sorry. <laughs> now, at the House of Industry, the tenants were required to go to church. But they could go to any church that they wanted. They were just required to attend a religious service. And I think that that was just to how, keep them in line. How did they prove it? Like a stamp on the hand or something? Or like well, I think validate was, their parking? I think that it was still a small enough neighborhood that people kind of knew, you know, that knew, they had gotten. Yeah. But what was really a radical concept was that here was a charity that was an equal opportunity charity. I mean, it was open to Catholics, to Protestants, to Jews. Anybody could come and take part in this. Also really widely criticized by others in the, in the press and in the government because it was so liberal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the House of Industry was constructed on Little Water Street facing Paradise Park. Mm-hmm. So it would later move right across the street from the mission on Worth Street. So gotcha. these two were right there. And in a very short time, the neighborhood would be very positively affected. There would be real change, especially because they were like at the intersection of the neighborhood. It's going to eventually kind of seep out through the rest of the streets, this uh, goodwill, I suppose. So what you're saying then is in the 1850s, Five Points isn't actually that bad of a neighborhood. It kind of gets its act together. And there are real success stories happening where people move from these tenements into a job training program and then get decent jobs in apartments uptown or in factories around the city. So there you have it. By now, it's the end of the 1850s, early 1860s, and the neighborhood is kind of cleaned up. Yeah, I wish we could say that That's it, it. that it stayed that way for you know the rest of its existence. But something happens to not just New York, but something happens to the United States uh, starting in the 1870s. And Five Points just can't withstand it. What was it? That is the huge immigration that happens in the 70s and 80s and basically you know keeps happening well into the 20th century the a massive massive amount of people so five points is still a little a stew of different kind of ethnic groups uh, irish germans eastern europeans blacks just poor americans who have lived here forever and not entirely cleaned up i don't want to w- completely right, whitewash right, 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 it and right. say that the charities had completely but some of these- soaked up every sin <laughs> But some of these groups have have begun to move out, of, first to their own neighborhoods. Like there's the Jewish contingent went more to Lower East Side, and that mm-hmm. became the Jewish neighborhood. The Germans went up to Germantown in East Village. But then who was taking their place? Well, between 1865 and 1910, it's a little bit of out of our range of our story, about 25 million immigrants enter the United States. Wow. You know, to put this into perspective, in 1870, there were only 39 million people in the United States. So this is radically changing the number of people 
in New York City in 1870, you only had 942,000 people in New York with 396,000 in Brooklyn. So that's a million and a quarter. Let's call it. Uh, pretty, uh, pretty much. So this huge influx of people is going to change the whole nature of the entire city, but especially here at Five Points. So there are two main ethnic groups that we're going to focus here because they're the ones that change the neighborhood the most. The first one is the Italians. By 1880, you're already going to have about 68,000 Italians living in New York, but this number would explode. Now, what was happening in Italy that made all these people leave and, and come to other countries, especially the United States and especially here in New York? If you're going to point to a specific incident, it's probably what kicks things off is in 1861, which is the creation of the Kingdom of Italy. You know, this is this was not unified country before then. It was like different regions. And so in 1861, this before 1870, any Italians that came over were actually from northern Italy. But after 1880, a majority of them were from the southern regions, or as they say, the Mezzogiorno. Yeah, I think I had that for lunch. <laughs> So the Southern Italians came over. They really felt they had nothing in common with their northern brothers. In fact, the United States government kept re their records separate, even as they started coming over. In New York, the, the places where they most commonly collect would actually be um, on Mulberry Street, which they would call the Mulberry Bend or simply the Bend. And they would live and collect themselves all the way up c to Canal and beyond, of course. You can say that the Little Italy's location, where it is now, was determined by its proximity to mm. five points. Now, your typical Italian who came over, most of them, just like the Irish, were men in their 20s and 40s, primarily looking for work. They would be a little bit more migratory than the Irish and other groups, they were, whereas they would stay for a few months, and then they'd go back to Italy, or they'd go out west for work or whatever. So as a result of this, the population of Five Points fluctuated wildly. Because of these fluctuations, there was actually less incentive to assimilate with other groups. So that's why you really created this, like, these enclaves of just people from different regions in Italy just being in like a two or three building neighborhood. Wow. The Italians would bring the whole notion of being fruit vendors. Mm. And so you'd have carts coming by with fruit. They would even fill the streets with music. They would, be, they would have organ grinders with monkeys. Um, you could, there were even places, That's an Italian thing? Yes, there was even places in Five Points where you could buy organs and you could buy monkeys wow. in Five Points. <laughs> wow. That's one unfortunate aspect of gentrification. You know, you get the monkey shops go out of business. We have no monkey shops. We have no organ grinders anymore. And you know what else we don't have is children minstrels. Excuse we me? <laughs> we don't have any more children minstrels. They... <laughs> Italian children would be sent out to make money and play music, and they would often have cruel masters. I mean, this is a practice that was brought over from Italy, but it would be right. seen here on the streets as well. The southern Italians weren't very skilled, so they would, uh, they would basically take a lot of the jobs that uh, the Irish used to take, a lot of laborers, city working jobs. As I said with the, as before, when you have a lot of young men, many of them out of work, alcohol, close proximity, you're going to have gangs. And so that also happened. However, what you see in Five Points is an actual connection into our current notion of organized crime and the mafia. I even read one quote that said, the Five Points is to organized crime what Plymouth Rock is to America. Wow. <laughs> Most notably, in fact, was a gang called the Five Point Gang that was formed in 1870 by 
Paul Kelly. It would be the most brutal and the most powerful gang throughout the city. It, it would far outlast the neighborhood, actually, into the 20th century and would eventually employ a lot of great, I don't know if this is the right word, great icons of the mafia, of the mafia show. Sure, yeah. Like Al Capone and Lucky Luciano would be involved with them at certain points. They would be basically, you know, muscle for hire. They would be involved in gambling circles. Um, and this is all happening um, like 10, 15 years after the great charity cleanup that I just got done talking <laughs> uh, about. Yeah, I'm sorry. It did. <laughs> In the same neighborhood. Uh-huh. Well, then you're going to love this, too. So basically, they're following a lot, of the pa- a lot of the same patterns that the Irish were. Another group comes over that's going to follow some of those patterns, but in a kind of a new and different way, that would be the Chinese. They're much lower numbers than all the other groups. In fact, slightly imperceptible for most of the existence of Five Points, but because of how they changed the neighborhood, it's important to mention them. Their migration into New York was quite different. Many of the Chinese had lived in the United States for many, many years. They came over from China to California and to the West during the gold rush, and then they also helped build the Transcontinental Railroad, but that was done. Mm. And so where do you go? A lot of these Chinese men would be the target of violence in the West because they were perceived as as taking a lot of jobs from the white men for lower pay. So they eventually either moved back to China or they came over to the East Coast and they began basically the Chinatowns of many eastern seaboard cities. And this happened starting around 1880. I have wild fluctuating population numbers because... There were official numbers, and then, of course, there were probably many more men here that were sort of like, you know... Yeah, because I can't imagine the city inspectors really going through all of the slums in these neighborhoods. I mean, the official number for the number of Chinese in 1880 is only 853, but other accounts say there's up to like 10,000 just in this neighborhood, you know, and there's... So they came at about the same time as the Italians. Did they live in the same exact neighborhood on the same streets? As a matter of fact, the center, the perceived center of where Chinatown started was was at Pell and Mott Street, literally one block northeast of Mulberry. So yes, they were living all living on top of each other, but living in their own little enclaves. So, but it was so it's incredible to think of that. I mean, the city's kind of like that today. I was just going to say it isn't that much different today. I mean, Chinatown really hasn't moved very far. That's the heart of Chinatown. Well, that's and that's uh, this is also why Little Italy and Chinatown have been so smushed together for years. It starts here. It starts with with this movement here in five. Right. Now, the Chinese are even more exaggerated in one particular feature. According to the official census in 1881, there was not a single Chinese woman living in Five Points. It was, sounds likely. <laughs> it was literally all men. It was almost completely men because they were had been laborers out in the West, pretty much. And it even got worse in 1882 when the U.S. government passes the oh-so-racist Chinese Exclusion Act, which mm. essentially halts any immigration from China, freezing the Chinese population here in the United States. The Chinese are also experiencing a lot of discrimination in their daily dealings. Landlords in Five Points would often not rent to Chinese. One thing they had on their side, however, is that a lot of them were very rich because they had made a lot of money out west. So they could actually open businesses here in Five Points, businesses like laundries, which were most popular businesses that they did, and grocers. The first Chinese restaurants opened during this period, you know, another 
Thank goodness. <laughs> I, Where would we be today? I wouldn't be anywhere with that Chinese. Um, you know, it catered only to Chinese men first because it was such an exotic food. But soon, some of the more adventurous bohemian parts of New York kind of got wind of this and came down and mm. got the bug for Chinese food. Eventually, they all made enough money to buy the buildings back. So then they could come back to the neighborhood as landowners. They also, of course, got involved in some Vice Industries, as they say. Some um, gambling houses, which they called Fantan Parlors. And, of course, Opium Dens uh, were popping up all over the place. We're popping up. (laughs) We're popping up all over the place, these Opium Dens. The Chinese, too, would also dabble in their version of gangs, just as the Italians and the Irish and all other, all the Jewish and all the other groups, they all had their own gangs. They would be called Tongs, T-O-N-G, a little different than what a normal gang, they would, you know, they would claim to be mutual aid societies, but they would frequently battle each other. So was there gang warfare between the Italian and the Chinese gangs? I believe it was primarily intra-tong, intra-tong warfare, essentially. The biggest Tong was a group called the Lu Yi Tong and was headed by this man named Tom Lee, who's really fascinating. He's deserved of his own podcast. He was the most powerful Chinese man in New York at this time. He led this very powerful Tong called the Lu Yi Tong. So to summarize, essentially, we have an incredibly overcrowded neighborhood again. With rival gangs. With rival gangs, a mixture of ethnicities. Some of them weren't even had an appearance here in Five Points, but 30 years ago. Reverting back to earlier days, almost becoming more squalid, more dangerous. Both these groups, the Italians and the Chinese, were seen as actually below, beneath the Irish, who had, of course, been the lowest rung in the New York society before. Well, of course, because they were the newest off the ship. But what I find interesting is, ironically, these two groups are the ones that have eventually defined the neighborhood. Mm. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. So where did Five Points go? I mean, you still have some tenements around there, but most of it has gone. Well, certainly the intersection of Five Points is gone, but, you know, you can go down, of course, Mulberry Street, Baxter Street, many of these streets, Mott Street, and still see these buildings from the era that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So where did the vice go? Where did the squalid conditions go? Or the heart, 
in the heart of it. Where did the actual intersection go? Yeah, like where the bend, Mulberry Bend. Right. You know. Well, we have to go to Denmark to start answering that question briefly. Naturally. Of course. May 3rd, 1849 is the birthday of one Jacob Rees. Now, Jacob was the third of 15 children. He worked as a carpenter in Copenhagen. Young Jacob moved to New York in 1870. You know, he was looking for carpentry work. He couldn't really find decent work that paid the bills. And he spent mm-hmm. many nights in the police-run lodging homes. There were these places where you could stay. Uh-huh. But it was really just for people who had nowhere else to go to keep them off the streets. As you can imagine, there was all manner of madness and... Hoodlums. Hoodlums, but also probably a lot of police abuse. And oh, right, right. just a lot of authorities trying to crack down on these people. Well, his only friend, by the way, was a dog he had allegedly met right after he arrived <laughs> off the ship. And soon thereafter, the dog followed him around everywhere, was his best friend. And a police officer beat the dog to death. Right oh my gosh! So that's so. The city is not really opening its arms for Jacob Reese. Finally, in 1873, he landed a job writing for a news bureau, which was what he was supposed to be doing anyway. The next <laughs> year, he got a job working for the South Brooklyn News. He had also decided to devote himself to causes to fight for people who had nothing, because he had become familiar through his job working for the newspaper with people who were getting beat up by the police, by each other, who lived with virtually nothing, who didn't have jobs. He became familiar with the underbelly of the city, especially in 1877 when he got a job at the New York Tribune. And he was covering, as a reporter, the police beat. So this was the early days of investigative journalism. and so- Certainly, okay. yeah. He, he's a considered a pioneer in investigative journalism and in something else, which we'll get to in a second. Mm -hmm. But he became very familiar with the most dangerous parts of the whole city, you know, especially the Five Points area. He also brought a certain empathy to it, which made Mm -hmm. him probably unusual as a reporter because he knew what it was like to have nothing. In his words, he considered the poor to be, quote, the victims rather than the makers of their fate. Okay, that's a that's a, a, a very forward-thinking idea. But the big thing for him would happen in 1888 when he was hired as a photojournalist for the New York Evening Sun. Now, he had some experience with photography, but they allowed him to start shooting with flash powder. Oh, so a very er- early incarnation of just a typical flash on the camera. Right. He could go around with this flash powder, which basically looked like a bolt of lightning shooting up from the top of his big clunky camera uh-huh. on which... You know, he was using this camera to shoot photographs on big glass slides. So this is a clunky endeavor, right, to take these big things. Mm -hmm. And he was shooting photographs in these alleyways, in these dark basements, inside these tenement homes. He was trying to record places, and the flash actually allowed him to shoot indoors and at night when that had never been possible before. So you're telling me he took this really expensive, cumbersome device... To the seediest neighborhoods full of the most loathsome characters and sat there and blinded them with the gigantic flash. Well, are you looking for pity here? What (laughs) what was that? I'm not sure. This is an unbelievably brave, question mark, stupid kind of thing for him to do. First of all, he had sympathy for his subjects, Mm -hmm. for the conditions in which they were living. Secondly, it was to some degree, okay, it was dangerous, of course. 
but it, there was such a novelty. Absolutely. A novelty to what he was doing. People didn't necessarily know what the camera was in the first place. Mm-hmm. And they certainly didn't know what the flash was. I mean, the flash <laughs> made it look like, a, like I said, a bolt of lightning had just gone off. And this was a new concept. So most people had never seen a flash before. So if you're in a dark room or dimly lit by gas lights or whatever, and all of a sudden there's this huge flash of white light in the <laughs> right. middle of the night and you've been drinking, you have <laughs> no idea what just happened. It could be an angel appearing in the room. So, it's, so curiosity basically paralyzes any criminal element that might come forward and... And traps that element onto his glass negative. And we have those shots today in, well, first magazine articles that he was publishing because he put out a piece in 1889 for Scribner's Magazine, a couple other pieces, and then famously in 1890 put out the book How the Other Half Lives, which is just a seminal work in photojournalism and really brought these images of slum life, low life, poor conditions into the living rooms and before the the eyes of a middle class and upper middle class readership and it you know people were aware of the conditions people had read about the conditions and i think tended to think of the people who lived down there as wretches mm-hmm. right so suddenly here were photographs that humanized the situation you look and at people's eyes it's a whole lot different when you're looking at their eyes and when you're really seeing the children and how they're sleeping and how they're dressed and what's going on mm-hmm. so he really brought their issue to the forefront with this book and didn't just publish the book, but then would go on lecture circuits and tour, projecting slides and apparently giving, you know, people chills in the audience and people breaking down in the audience because they just hadn't seen these images. And he gave really middle class and upper class New Yorkers and Americans a virtual tour of the five point slums. Amazing. And this book was this was how the other half lives. Yes. Correct. And it's still available today. It's in sure. print. Uh-huh. Should also just note that Reese's photographs weren't just in five points either. They were also in the Lower East Side yeah. and other tenements as well. Look it up or look up the photographs online at least and well, see some of these because you can see all of these places that we've been talking about. They're we, all documented. The book even convinced Theodore Roosevelt, who was a police commissioner, to shut down the, those police lodging houses because oh. he was taking photographs in those as well. Roosevelt would become a friend of Reese's for life and would reportedly coin the term muckraking journalism. Oh, based on him? Roosevelt's wow. term. Reese uh, would eventually move outside the city and died in 1914. But by that point, many of the issues that he brought to the forefront had been addressed by city planners, by legislators, and real reforms had been forced upon the legislators um, in terms of you know building codes and other things that people never really talked about before. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so they decided that many of these collections of tenements there was just nothing that you could improve them so you just have to so they decided to sort of mass demolish all of these areas and it wasn't just in five points it was all over the city but here in five points they eventually started demolition of some of these tenements in 1895 displacing the populations but they scatter to other parts of manhattan now what did they decide to do initially with this neighborhood where they're where they're demolishing well rename the streets No, they're keeping the names of the streets, but they're like, let's build a quaint little park. Now, if you're going to build a park, who are you going to call? 
why why don't you call Calvert Vox, our old friend from Central Park? Now, at this time, you know, he's m- much older. As a matter of fact, in 1895, the same year the te- tenements were demolished, he would actually die. But he designed the park that would go there, and they would call it Mulberry Bend Park. It would open in June 15th, 1897. Mm -hmm. It's very proper, open lawns, curvy little paths. As a matter of fact, Jacob Reese didn't like it because they had the lawns fenced off. People couldn't be on it. There were keep off the grass signs, essentially, and he protested against it. This park is basically in the place where Columbus Park is today. It's a little bit, gotcha. it's a little bit larger, but it's not. It's way too formal for the neighborhood. It's a little clunky. Uh, so, throughout the years, it goes through various different changes. Its name changes in 1911 because of the of the huge Italian influx in the neighborhood that's sort of right next to it. They call it Columbus Park after Christopher Columbus. Uh-huh. Um, today's Columbus Park it is greatly altered from Vox's design. Obviously, it's a very cluttered and very busy um they've done amazing things with cement lots of cement there and in 1926 they built the new york county courthouse right next to it and then the whole foley square gets built up and essentially five points is almost entirely erased some of the core streets are still there with different names and many of the worst streets were completely removed from the city mm-hmm. and they disappeared the you know there are areas of Chinatown that are close by that you can sort of like if you use your imagination you can see it in your head and that's why I recommend people do is go go down to this neighborhood wander around because it just changes from block to block it I'm really sure. is one of the Ma- most fascinating and Mulberry, south of canal these are fabulous streets and you can envision it there's a lot of books on five points you can even go rent gangs of New York again if you just want to get in the mood. We've leaned heavily on two or three different sources for this podcast, one of them being the Tyler Anbinder book called Five Points. Of course, Jacob Rees is How the Other Half Lives. We peered into. I also got a lot of my information about the various ethnic groups from a book called Ethnic America by Thomas Sell. Um, but there's a lot of resources. There's a lot of websites specifically devoted to Five Points, which I'll have links to on, on our own website, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. I'll also put a lot of Jacob Breeze photographs up there so you can take a look at them for yourself. So thank you for taking a virtual tour with us through the notorious and wicked neighborhood of Five Points. We will not have a show next week, so we will see you in two weeks. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.